My name is Raymond. I'm also one of the pastors here. It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys again this Sunday morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. You know, second thought. I'll read through that. I'm going to start in verse 27. Sorry, Robert. Just in, in the moment. So some of it won't be up on the slide, if, or, or maybe just the reference will be on the slide. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. All the way through chapter 14, verse 5. Before we pray and get started, I trust that, uh, that, that by now most of you have heard about the recent recalls of Toyota vehicles here in this country and abroad. How many of you have heard about those recalls? Well, apparently there's a defect where, where the accelerator at times would get stuck even to the floor of the vehicle. And obviously that's very dangerous. It's, it's been known to send some Toyota vehicles accelerating out of control. Uh, good news is, I believe that those things are being adequately addressed by Toyota technicians. So if you have a Toyota, don't panic. Uh, those things, if you've gotten a recall notice, they, they are fixing the problem. Uh, but understandably, it's caused some concern among Toyota owners. One couple in particular, the, the wife was the primary driver of a Toyota Corolla that they had recently purchased. And the husband uh, was trying to convince her that everything was okay now that the car had been serviced, but she, she refused to drive the car. And who could blame her? Well, this went on for weeks. The husband, for about two weeks, tried to convince his wife to, to drive this car that they had just spent so much money on, and yet still she just couldn't get past her fears. And so a couple weeks later, the husband finally gave up and actually began to pray right, right there in front of his wife, just in tongues, began to pray in tongues right in front of his wife, pleading with God, as it were, to make his wife drive this car. Now, you can imagine how the wife felt here at this point. I mean, you talk about feeling completely ignored and invalidated. So she decided she was going to pray in tongues too. So she lifted her hands, looked right at her husband, and said, you should have bought a Honda, should have bought a Honda, not a Corolla, should have bought a Honda. What, what does Paul mean when he, he mentions the gift of speaking in tongues? Is it you should have bought a Honda, or is it, is it something else? Time permitting, time permitting. I promised Heather I would not laugh at my own joke. And I failed. Time permitting, we will, we will get to answer that question today. But at the very least, we'll, we'll get to answer, as we go through chapter 13, we'll get to answer one of the questions that some of you sent in over the past two weeks. Namely, are the gifts of prophecy and tongues even still around today in the church? So let's pray. And as we read God's word together, we'll see what he has to say about those things and more. Heavenly Father, as we, as we come together now to read and to study your word together, this is, this is one of those times where no mere man's voice will do. And so we're, we're asking you to, to speak to all of us. We need to hear God. When we come together like this at, at the beginning of the week, we need to hear God speak. And none of us feels adequate for that. So, so here your people are gathered together in your name to hear you speak. And that's what we ask you to do at this time. We ask all of this, of course, in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. 
Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And we said last week the answer to all those things is no. But, verse 31, eagerly desire the higher gifts. And now I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who speaks, or the one rather who prophesies, builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Lord, we pray again that you would help us to understand what you meant when you spoke these words through the Apostle Paul. Amen. The Corinthians believed the same thing that some of us have been taught to believe today. They believed that the primary evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and fullness among them 
was to be found in sensational spiritual gifts and manifestations of the Spirit like miraculous healings and speaking in tongues. However, if you read through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you you begin to understand that the Apostle Paul was trying to teach them something else. That while those sensational gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit are included in Paul's list, not an exhaustive list, but they are included on Paul's list of legitimate and authentic manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Paul would say, yes, the Holy Spirit does at times show up in public gatherings of the church in these ways. You don't want to miss that as we go on. But Paul is trying to teach them that even while that is the case, the primary evidence of the Spirit's presence and fullness among his people is found elsewhere. In chapter 12, verse 3, he points us to the confession of the Spirit that Jesus is Lord. And he says there in chapter 12, verse 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it is evidence of the Spirit's presence. But not just His presence, it is also evidence of the Spirit's fullness because as Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 and other places teach us, it is out of the overflow or the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So this confession of the Holy Spirit is at one and the same time an evidence of His presence and fullness. But it isn't just in the confession of the Spirit that we find this primary evidence of His presence and fullness. It is in that confession accompanied by a life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Love. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the Apostle Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that is his way in an agricultural sense of saying, this is what is naturally produced by a life filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as an apple tree naturally produces apples because of the life that is within it, a Christian naturally brings forth love, the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul points God's people to this primary evidence of the confession of the Holy Spirit and a life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit as the primary evidences of the Spirit's presence and fullness. And so much of the church then and today has believed something else. One of the things, let me just, before I go on, one of the things that I think I have really learned over the years about the Holy Spirit is found in this confession. And not just here in 1 Corinthians 12, but also if you read this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says there that God, because Jesus has humbled himself and has become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Holy Spirit, nobody can make that confession except in the Holy Spirit, correct? The Holy Spirit is moving all of history to the place where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is his primary and ultimate work in the world. 
to bring glory to Jesus Christ and to God the Father. To call the whole world's attention to Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired that passage in Philippians. Because 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tell us that no prophecy of Scripture ever found its origin in the mind or will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when we read Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, we discover something about the Holy Spirit. That in this passage, He inspires, which lets us have a little bit of insight into the ultimate end of all of His work, we find that He mentions Jesus Christ as the one to whom He calls the whole world's attention. And He says that He does all of this to the glory of God the Father, and He Himself remains unmentioned. Why? If no one can say that except in the Holy Spirit, why does he leave his own name out when the credits are rolled? You know what I've learned? The Holy Spirit has no interest in calling attention to himself. Perhaps the most spirit-filled environment you have ever been in is one where you heard very little about the Holy Spirit and very much about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is Christ-centered and not Spirit-centered. And let that sink in as we continue to read. It is one of the most life-transforming truths if you really will let yourself grab a hold of it. There are other places where he does mention himself. But when you read the Bible and understand that the Spirit has inspired the Scriptures, it is clear that he is Christ-centered and not Spirit-centered. As we move on to chapter 12, verse 31, I want to point out here that Paul gives us a command and a promise. In verse 31, and let's look at the promise first. The promise says that he's going to show us a more excellent way to show the Holy Spirit in our public gatherings. More excellent than the current manner of the Corinthians, which was, to borrow John MacArthur's term, very charismatically chaotic. Yet you will notice as we go through this passage that while you might expect Paul to turn the Corinthians away from any charismatic expression then, since they are charismatically chaotic, you might be surprised by the other thing that we see in verse 31, which is a command to earnestly desire the higher gifts. Why would you look at a church as crazy as the Corinthians and tell them to earnestly desire the greater gifts? Interestingly, if you were to read this in the original Greek, that word gifts is the Greek word charismata. That's the word that we get the word charismatic from. He just told the Corinthians to earnestly desire charismatic expression in their life and in their church. Here's my question. How would you rate your own obedience to this command? Do you earnestly desire charismatic expression? For the Holy Spirit to show himself through you for the good of the church 
in charismatic ways. Do you know what's happened to us? We have allowed our religious traditions, rather than the Bible, to define for us what it means to be charismatic. And it makes me wonder, perhaps it makes you wonder, where else might we be allowing our religious traditions, rather than the Bible, to define certain aspects of Christianity for us? Where are we allowing our religious traditions to perhaps drown out the voice of the Bible? I want to suggest that that is precisely what is going on when it comes to the issue of whether or not certain spiritual gifts are still around today in the church. So let's not waste any time getting there to chapter 13, verse 8, where Paul begins to address that for us, but we dare not skip verses 1 to 7. So let me briefly say something about those. In verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul's point is very simple in chapter 13. It's not a separate chapter on love designed exclusively to be used at weddings, although it is fine for that purpose. This is actually a rebuke. When Paul writes this, I doubt very much if any of the Corinthians who had received this letter said, Hey, Paul, Johnny Corinthian and I are getting married in a couple of weeks, and we just... We love that passage on love that you wrote to us in that letter. We're thinking of using it in our wedding. No, they would have heard this as a rebuke. Paul is saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a gong or a symbol, basically nothing. If I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. In other words, he's going back through some of the same spiritual gifts he mentioned in chapter 12. And he is saying, if I have these, even to the full, but I don't have the fruit of the Spirit, I'm nothing. Gift of the Spirit minus the fruit of the Spirit, I am nothing. It doesn't mean that God might not use some things I do to help others, but at the end of the day, Paul says, I am a zero because I basically don't contribute very much to the purpose for which the gifts were given to me. And that is to, in a in an other-centered, God-glorifying way to seek the good of those around me, the common good that we read about in chapter 12, verse 7. And Paul goes through and he, he says this, and in verse 4 through 7, so not only does he leave that part there where he says, I've got to have the fruit of the Spirit with the gifts of the Spirit, but in chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, he begins to define for them what love is, not so much by by actually defining it, but by showing them what love is is through what it does or does not do. And so he says, love is patient and kind, and by inference, you Corinthians are not. Love does not envy or boast, but you Corinthians certainly do. In fact, if you remember from last week, that's what we were highlighting, is that when we confuse where we're, the, where we're different, and we insist that we're the same where the Bible says we're different, or we insist that we're different where the Bible says that we're the same, that begins to cause a kind of envy and boasting to creep into the church over the issue of spiritual gifts and other things. Such that in chapter 12, verse 15, we see one saying, if, I, if I'm not a hand, I, I must be useless. I, the body doesn't need me. I'm not a part of the body. And so there begins to be this kind of envy that results over spiritual gifts. We see the boasting in verse 21. The I forget the exact body parts that are used. Let me, let me look at it very quickly. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. There's a kind of boasting, I don't need you in order to perform the role that God has given me to play in the church. And that's not true. So the envy and the boasting comes in, and Paul addresses it here. Love does not envy or boast. So in every, in every stage, what Paul is showing them is the, the most important thing about the, the life of Christians and what we are to display is love, and that is primarily the thing you are missing as a church. Yet you consider yourself to be full of the Holy Spirit. This cannot be. This cannot be. Your assessment of yourselves is completely off. Love is the final litmus test of the Spirit's presence and fullness in a church. So Paul goes through and he says this in verses 4 through 7. Then he comes to verse 8. Let's read this together and we'll let Paul answer the question here for us concerning whether or not certain spiritual gifts are still around in the church today. Regardless of whether or not you and I have personally experienced them. Verse 8 says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. There are two primary camps or teams surrounding this issue of the expiration date of certain spiritual gifts. There are some who say that the expiration date has already come. That these gifts, like prophecy and tongues, and usually knowledge is not given the same amount of attention in the discussion, but it's listed in the Bible as well, that these gifts have already ceased, and therefore many people refer to that group of people as the cessationists. And then on the other side, there's a group that I like to call the continuous. They say that the expiration date for these gifts has not yet come. And that these gifts are still alive in the church today. Which which is it? Which is it? Because I would submit that that for for some of us, we'll find out in a minute, but perhaps, perhaps the case is that these gifts have passed away already. They have ceased. But since our religious traditions tell us that they have not, we we drown out the voice of the Bible. Or, it's the other way around. And the expiration date has not yet come. The gifts have not yet ceased. But again, our religious traditions tell us something else and we drown out the voice of the Bible. Albeit very innocently in terms of motive. It's just what we believe at the current time. Let's allow Paul to answer this for us. In verse 8, you see where everybody is agreed. As for prophecies, they will pass away. No one debates that. Everyone is agreed there. As for tongues, they will cease. No one debates that. If you disagree with that, then we would, we would have to question whether or not you take the Bible seriously. It's very plain, is it not? This is not an interpretation As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. There is an expiration date. The only question is when. Another place where people are agreed is that at the time when Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, the expiration date was yet in the future. Notice it says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. So they had not yet passed away at that time. 
Well, what about today? We go on and we keep reading. Paul gives us some help. In verses 9 and 10, he begins to tell us why the gifts of prophecy, knowledge, tongues will pass away. He says in verse 9 and 10, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And the partial is referring back to those gifts he just mentioned in verse 8. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, in terms of what he means by that. But notice that Paul says here that the reason these things will pass away is because they are temporary and they are designed to be replaced by something more perfect or more permanent, if you will. When the perfect comes, verse 10, the partial will pass away. It's intended to pass away. A good example of this, of something imperfect and partial and temporary being replaced by something more permanent, is given for us in verse 11. Paul, Paul mentions an example here. He says, let me show you an example of childhood being replaced by adulthood. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So childhood is intended to be replaced by something more permanent, adulthood. In the same way, some of these spiritual gifts have always been intended by God to be replaced by something more permanent. The perfect of verse 10, if you will. The debate centers around what that thing is. What is this, the perfect, that will come, mentioned in verse 10? Some say it is the completed canon of Scripture, the Bible. That when the Bible has finally come, the need for these other spiritual gifts is no more. And therefore, they pass away at that time. The other side, the continuous, would say, no, that perfect thing which is to come is referring to something else. And let me tell you why at least I believe that the continuous are right. Don't drown me out at this point. Let me tell you why I believe the continuous are right. Verse 10 tells us when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So we have in the Bible a phrase that indicates for us the exact time at which these temporary gifts will pass away. It is the time indicated by the phrase when the perfect comes. And when is that? If we go on reading in verse 12, we we see the following words. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. And how fully? Even as I am fully known. Is it not evident and clear That the time indicated by the phrase, when the perfect comes, in verse 10, is the same time indicated by the phrases, then I shall see face to face, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known, in verse 12. 
it is the same time being indicated. For now, I know in part that knowledge mentioned in verse 8 is partial. It is one of the partial things, my knowledge of God and of his perfect will, is one of those partial things that will be replaced by something more perfect at some time. When the perfect comes. Now we know in part, we prophesy in part. Tongues is grouped into that. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. When the perfect comes. Can that be the Bible? Can I say that because I possess the Bible today, I know God and His will fully, even as I am fully known? Or is it more likely? Is it more likely that this time being indicated by the phrase, when the perfect comes, refers to the second coming of Christ? That now I have an image that is rather fuzzy and dim, I have perhaps a photograph of Christ given to me in the Bible, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know him fully, even as I am fully known. I'm going to show you something in chapter 1 that I just noticed over the past two weeks. I had never noticed it before. That gives me even more reason to lean in that direction. If you have your Bibles, you can... Without losing your place, flip to chapter 1. And there is an interesting part there in verse 7. Paul is commending the Corinthians for the grace of God evident in their church, despite all of this chaos. And in verse 5 he says, In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In anticipation of what he will write in verse 8 through 12 of chapter 13, the Apostle Paul introduces this in chapter 1 and says that you possess spiritual gifts as you wait for the revealing of Jesus. It would seem to me then that the perfect which is coming to replace the need for and the purpose of those partial gifts is the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would encourage all of us to examine our previously believed religious traditions in light of the Scripture. And at the same time, I would encourage us to hear out Anybody who who happens to be of a different opinion on this matter, who believes that the gifts that we mentioned in this chapter have already ceased. There are men and women I respect greatly who have a completely different opinion on this. This is not an issue that separates us from one another as Christians. This is is just from the scriptures how I currently understand this. And I, I will say with all honesty, if at some point in the future God instructs me and, and convinces me that actually, actually, Raymond, these things have passed away already, I would hope that at that point I would be able to do what I did last week 
when I mentioned that something in my thinking about the way I understand the baptism of the Spirit has changed over the past seven years. If this is another one of those things that at some point in the future God plans to change in the way that I think, I'm open to that. I don't, I don't believe any one of us has the fullness of knowledge concerning any of these things. That is my current position based on my current understanding of the Scriptures. Is that fair to say? The Apostle Paul goes on after answering that question. Um, and I think I should go on and answer a question for us. Now that I've just told you I believe that some of these gifts are still here, what did I just tell you is still around? It, let's say the gift of tongues is still here. What is it? And what does it look like? What did I just tell you is still here? There are some things I do know about this gift from the Bible, and then some things I don't know. And let me tell you what I do know. Here's what I do know, and I want you to follow me along in your Bibles. Not all of these things will be on the screen. But the first thing, there are four things here that I do know from the Bible about the gift of tongues is that, number one, it is Holy Spirit-inspired speech. Shura Barahanda. All I know, it is Holy Spirit-inspired speech. And we know that because in chapter 12, verse 10, in his list of manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, To another is given the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues. It is Holy Spirit-inspired speech. It is, number two, unintelligible spirit-inspired speech. It is something we don't understand, and without interpretation, it is unintelligible both to the speaker and to the hearer. Here's where I get that from in the Bible. In chapter 14, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. No one understands him. And, and we learn that that no one includes the speaker himself by the time we get to chapter 14, verse 13, where Paul says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? Paul asks this question. What am I to do in verse 15? Well, some of us would say, Paul, you ought to put aside altogether that practice of speaking and praying in ways that you, that you don't understand and that render your mind unfruitful. Watch what Paul says. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Paul, in his speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, would actually have to pray for the Lord to help him interpret what he's saying. Stick with me. Third thing we know from the Bible, it's not only... Holy Spirit-inspired speech. It is unintelligible Spirit-inspired speech. The third thing we know is that it is not something which renders the speaker out of control. 
I'll say that again, just because of the faces. It is not something which renders the speaker out of control. Here is where I get that from in the Bible. Verses 27 and 28 of chapter 14. Notice carefully what the Apostle Paul says here. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So in other words, the Holy Spirit comes upon a particular Christian in a special way, and the result is that that person receives at that moment the manifestation of the Spirit in speaking in another tongue, an unintelligible, Holy Spirit-inspired form of speech. And the Apostle Paul says, great, if there's no one here to interpret, keep it to yourself in the public gathering of the church. Which means that the person has a great measure of control over what they do with that manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Altogether different from what we are led to believe by some. I just couldn't help it. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. Yes, you can. Right? And he says again, let everybody take turns doing this thing. This is not the sort of thing you say to people who have received something that renders them powerless against it. There is obviously a measure of control. So it's not something that renders the speaker out of control, even though it has been known to render some out of control. And the fourth thing we see is, it is directed toward God and not toward men. Now this is important. Look at verse 2. Paul says, for one who speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men, but to God. The nature of this gift is such that when it comes, it is directed not toward men, but to God in praise, in prayer. Which means this. You want an application of that? Practical implication of this. When someone receives an interpretation of a tongue, we would expect the interpretation to be directed toward God and not toward men. If the tongue itself is directed toward God and not toward men, how can the interpretation be directed toward men? I have an interpretation. The Lord says, you ought to do such and such. I question that. Because tongues are directed not toward men, but toward God. I don't say that to discount any of our experiences. I say to clarify them. I think in some cases what we may have had are two separate manifestations of the Spirit. One unintelligible form of speech, a tongue, and a separate prophecy that was confused as an interpretation of the tongue. Altogether possible. So I don't say this to discount our experiences. 
I believe that there are authentic and legitimate manifestations of the Spirit many of us have encountered. I say it to clarify them with the Scripture. So that as we continue through this series, we will not be afraid of allowing the Holy Spirit to bring proper order to the environment that we call the public gathering of the church. And you know why? Here's here's why I'll say that. Because one of the biggest things we face as believers, rightly eager for manifestations of the Holy Spirit, one of the biggest challenges we face is the idea that somehow we're putting God in a box if we obey the Bible. But who inspired the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit, right? If the Holy Spirit says, here's how you should regulate the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your public gatherings, are we putting Him in a box? If we are, it is a box that He Himself has made and has labeled with the following words, put Holy Spirit in here, in public gatherings. It's not a box we have made for him. There's no sin in this. As a matter of fact, the first thing you see the Holy Spirit doing in the Bible is restoring order to something that had become chaotic. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. The earth had become formless and void, and he begins to bring order to everything. And yet today the Holy Spirit is known among us for bringing chaos where there was once order. Folks, it cannot be. We have been tricked. But Malcolm X, I'm thinking about the movie, we've been bamboozled, hoodwinked, run amok. Listen, these are real things for us. And then again, I say this just to clarify our experiences with the Scripture. With the hope that you and I will ultimately be completely free to express the life of the Holy Spirit through us for the common good of all those gathered in biblical and orderly ways. That is my ultimate hope with this. All right? And to get there, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to change some things about the way that we think and the way that we, we act. But that's what we should expect when we come to the Bible, that it is going to instruct us about some things about our life that are currently not in agreement with God's Word, and that we should have to hear what God says in the Bible, believe what God says in the Bible, Repent from the way we currently do things and turn toward what God says in the Bible by the power of the Spirit. I mean, that is the expectation we walk into a room like this with. All right, so, so that's what we know about tongues from the Bible. What I don't know is whether or not this thing is limited to something uh, that is is, is, is the gift of tongues limited to known human languages that one has never learned in the usual manner. I, I really don't know. On the one hand, I I hear things like verse 2 of chapter 14, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. And I would think that when Paul speaks about tongues here in this chapter, he doesn't have in mind something that is directed toward men such that someone would be able to understand it. For instance, he goes into Athens and begins to speak in Greek. Now, he would happen to know that language, but let's say there's a, a language Paul didn't know, and God wanted to use him in cross-cultural evangelism. This has happened before, by the way. Let's say he steps off of a plane, and he begins to speak in the language of those people, even though he's never learned the language. That has actually happened numerous times. 
It is, an ask, it is one way that we know the gift of tongues works. The question is, is it limited to that? I really don't know. I think we would all agree it's not should about a Honda. But I, I don't know that it doesn't include something that many Christians refer to something like a private prayer language. Again, and, and the reason I have, I have those uncertainties is because of other things like chapter, 12, or chapter 14, rather, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So I can accept Paul going into parts of the world where maybe he didn't know a language and a gift of tongues came. But the way the Apostle Paul describes the gift of tongues in chapter 14, verse 14, as he's praying with it, it's not just for evangelism, he's praying and his mind is unfruitful. He doesn't understand it. His mind is unfruitful. But he is indeed praying with his spirit. And that leads me to believe that this is not something that is just a known human language that, that at some point could just be interpreted by anybody, but rather, according to verse 2, he is uttering mysteries to God in the spirit. It, just what it leads me to believe at this time. And I consider with Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that there clearly... That is a case where the gift of tongues is given and what is going on is that people are speaking in known human languages. That is clear in Acts chapter 2. But does it include something more than that? It sounds here in chapter 14, verse 14, that Paul is speaking about a private prayer language. In chapter 13, verse 1, he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm basically useless. What if, what if the gift of tongues includes the ability of a human being like Paul to speak in something that he designates as the tongues of angels? In fact, one commentator, Gordon Fee, had this to say. As soon as I find it, I will read it for you. He said that the Corinthians at least, and at least Paul, that they thought of the gift of tongues as the languages of angels seems highly likely. For two reasons. Number one, there is some evidence from Jewish sources that the angels were believed to have their own heavenly language or dialects. And that by means of the Spirit, one could speak these dialects. Thus, in in a historical Jewish writing, this is not the scripture, but in one historical Jewish writing called the Testament of Job, in chapters 48 to 50, Job's three daughters are given charismatic sashes, and when these were put on, they allowed one of his daughters, Hemera, to speak ecstatically in the angelic dialect, sending up a hymn to God in the hymnic style of the angels. And as she spoke ecstatically, she allowed the spirit to be inscribed on her garment. And that's in the Testament of Job. Paul would have known this, would have been familiar with it. And early Jewish Christians would have been familiar with these things. And when Paul speaks about the tongues of angels, maybe this is something like what he has in mind. And I say it because maybe, maybe we don't need to discount the experience of our Christian brothers and sisters who say that this gift of the Spirit has been given to them. 
I see nothing in chapter 13, verse 8 to 12, to say the expiration date has already come. And I see nothing in any other part of the Bible here that would force us to believe that the gift of tongues is limited exclusively to known human languages. What we may have is a case where some Christians have experienced a gift that other Christians have not. And isn't that what we expect after reading chapter 12? We don't have to fight about this. And I hesitated with whether or not to say this, but it seems right. Privately, in my own life, I pray in tongues. It's not all the time, but privately in my own life, I pray in tongues. Before every sermon I deliver, it seems that that's one of the ways the Holy Spirit comes upon me. And and I feel extremely built up. According to chapter 14, when you read in chapter 14... What the Apostle Paul says here in verse 4 and 5, he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. I believe that. I've experienced it. I do not attempt here to build a doctrine on my personal experience because I believe that in, in the future, this experience may be informed by Scripture. And I'm open to that being changed at any moment if I learn from Scripture that my experience was something altogether different. However, what I do What I do want to say is I have felt built up in moments like that. Times where I've needed to pray, and as I sat down to pray, I almost could not pray in the language that I know. And this, this manifestation, I believe, of the Spirit has come. And as I begin to pray in an unknown tongue, something is released. Something comes off of me. And that need to pray has been satisfied. And and I and it's gone. I have felt that. I know what that feels like. I know what it looks like. The one who prays in a tongue builds up himself. And this is such a good thing to Paul that in verse 5 of chapter 14, he says, I want you all to speak in tongues. But even more to prophesy. And so here, and we'll, we'll close here with this, but this is, this is what we begin to learn that in chapter 12, verse 31, Paul mentions there are greater or higher gifts. And in chapter 14, he begins to tell us what those are and what what causes something to be identified as a greater gift. In verse 5, he says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. That's the same word that we saw as higher in verse 31, greater in chapter 14, verse 5. The one who speaks in a tongue, or the one who prophesies, is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. And then it's different. If someone interprets, the result is that the church is built up. And therefore, the greater gifts that we are called to earnestly desire are those which build up the church, which is exactly what love does. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so the greater gifts that we are called to earnestly desire as a church are those that are consistent with the ultimate goal of love to build up the church. Do you earnestly desire the greater gifts that people can understand and that build up the church? 
Before I leave, I want to mention this. We'd be, we'd be remiss to speak about desiring the greater gifts without talking about the greatest gift that has ever been given to us. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. In His love, God gives gifts. The greatest gift we have ever received is His Son, Jesus Christ. And with all of the uncertainties that I have concerning some of these lesser gifts, let me tell you what I know for certain. God has made this Jesus, whom we have crucified with our sins, both Lord and Christ. We have crucified the author of life and the very Son of God by our sins. And we have gone after so many other good things to the complete neglect of our relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the penalty for that, even though on on earth here we would say that it is not so severe of a thing, we're still decent and good people, the penalty for that in heaven is capital punishment. It is death and it is hell, eternal separation from God. And let me clarify this for us. We are not correct. Heaven is better suited to determine what justice demands when sin has happened toward God. What we deserve for rejecting Christ and ignoring Christ is death and hell and eternal punishment. Nothing else even begins to scratch the surface of what we deserve. Yet God in his love and in his mercy gave his one and only son. And we speak in chapter 13 about giving up my body to be burned. And Jesus gave up his body, gave up his body on the cross, died and suffered in our place for our sins. And God raised him from the dead, showing that he had accepted what Jesus had done on on our behalf. And here's what I know for certain. Everyone who humbles himself or herself before the cross of Jesus Christ and who surrenders his or her life to Christ the way that he surrendered his life for us receives full pardon and a full share in the eternal life that only he can give. Have you come to Christ, to the cross where your sins are pardoned? and where you are given eternal life as a free gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would would answer questions now that I cause to be asked in a way that only you can. And And I pray that you would help us all to go into the Bibles this week, Bibles that we have, that you've so graciously given to us, to seek clarity concerning these things. Most of all, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning who walked in without, without ever having brought their sins to the cross of Jesus Christ, that they would consider the greatest gift you've ever given us, that they would come 